hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Um, Hello, we're back for episode four of The Seeds of Death. And I have a question for you both. Uh, I should say that um, obviously because I'm here, Joe's here, because it wouldn't be A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife without Joe. Hello, Joe. Oh, yes, I'm here. And of course, Fraser's here as well. Stop it. <laughs> Fraser is trying to tell us he's on holiday this week, but this is not true. <laughs> he's not getting away with it. With that, this is all pre-recorded inserts. Stop <laughs> it. Off to Tenerife for a week and left us to it <laughs> to grow his sideburns. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, one of the things I was thinking about with the reputation of this story is that. I have this theory that it's a bit undervalued by Doctor Who fans because it's been available. It's the Patrick Troughton story that's been available to everyone for the longest time. So this was one of the very earliest BBC video releases. I think it was number four, um, release number four or five. So um, it was released, I think, in 1985. So it's been available for... A very, very long time. I'm not uh, uh, nearly 40 years. So and I often wonder whether it just kind of gets forgotten about because we take it for granted that um, because everyone's been able to watch it for such a long time that its reputation sort of dwindles a little bit maybe because of that. I... I do. I I agree with you. I think there is something about longevity and availability means that yeah, like it's it's like things like Death to the Daleks and Spirit of the Space and things like that that came out very early. Revenge of the Cybermen. Um, but I remember getting that VHS and I remember not being able to make head nor bloody one. The quality of it was terrible. Two, it was just so long as a six parter, as one story, and weirdly, I didn't have that same problem with Talents of Wang Chiang. Um, that I, I used to really enjoy the length of that but with this one because I think there is a lot of repetitive motion in this without those sort of breaks and leading up to those cliffhangers and some of those cliffhangers are excellent um, I think it's a bit of a chore it was when it came out on DVD polished up and that's when I really saw the strength of this and the strength of the direction so yeah I think I think it was its second iteration where it won me over but you Fraser um, I can see that point of view, um, but I think there's also a lot to be said for the nostalgia value. So I think uh-huh. there are, you know, a lot of people who will think the opposite, who love this story a little bit more because it is one that they got first of all. Um, it's sort of like me with the Dominators, you know, um, the Dominators was one of the, and I know it's it's unusual for me to mention this, um, but the Dominators was um, one of the first ones I got on VHS. So that's always got that sort of, um nostalgia feeling behind it for me. Um so I imagine that there's there is a lot of people out there who will think, oh well, I love the seeds of death because it's the first one I got because I played it at death because I hadn't got any other Troutons um because there weren't any available. There was only, you know, a handful. So this is one that you know I wore the VHS, I wore the little tape out of watching over and over again. So there will be people out there that you know adore this story for that reason as well. Um, but yeah there is something um you know 
a little bit more exciting about, you know, coming into one that you haven't seen before, you know, when like we get an animation, uh, a new animation coming out, it's like, oh, it's a, it's a chance to see this one. You know, we've only had um, the the recons or the telly snaps beforehand, so now we get a chance to enjoy it. So I think there is there is legs in that, but I think certainly an element of the other side as well. Bringing up those animations, that's really interesting because I think like I don't know, stuff like Evil of the Daleks and stuff like that, I think are brilliant animations. They'll never have that nostalgic place in my heart that something like Death to the Daleks, when I watched when I was seven years old, again and again and again, do. Yeah, yeah I know that Evil of the Daleks is a way better story than Death to the Daleks, but it'll never have that same place in my affection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Evil of the Daleks, it's a great animation. It's a great story. There's a lot to, a lot to enjoy of it. But Power of the Daleks was one I had on audio cassette. So I used to listen mm-hmm. to Power of the Daleks in my bedroom. And when I moved out and me, you know, had me, um, you know, me ghetto blaster in the, <laughs> in the kitchen. Very 1980s. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's one that I listened to quite a few times. And then when you get the animation coming in on top of the audio, that just adds an extra... Extra little dimension, whereas you know, evil is is has got all that work to do. Evil's got to, you know, win us over with everything. Whereas, you know, the power animations, you know, the work's virtually done. It's just adding moving pictures to sound. It suddenly makes a lot of sense. You know, it's not that the Dominators is any good. It's it's just it's ingrained into your childhood. That's the truth of the matter. Sorry, Joe. You, you, no, I, you think, I think the Wi-Fi broke there. You said something <laughs> about the, the Dominators not being good. <laughs> Want to check your connection because we can't have that happen in all this. Well, I spent I spent three and a half hours discussing why it's so fantastic that story over you. All right, I do acknowledge it is good, but it's true. I mean, th- those those early BBC video, uh, I have uh, a love for um, Revenge of the Cybermen simply because it was the only Tom Baker story I had for for a long time, and it was the only one I'd seen for a long time. And it's difficult to get over that. And objectively, it's not a great story. It's a very well directed, bad story, but it's not a great story. But because I know it inside out and I watch that video so many times, you can't help but love it. So if I say, does that give you tingles? (laughs) Oh, well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look. I mean, we better discuss some of this into the episode. Otherwise, what we have had to talk about? Well, when's that ever stopped us? <laughs> <laughs> well, who's going to count us in? Well, I suppose I will count us in in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Fraser brought something very interesting up in part one about mm-hmm. Patrick Troughton being away in part four. Now, like, we did flog the joke to death that Fraser weren't going to be around in part four, but he is actually here. Um, you two let, wouldn't let us go with that joke. That would have been a great joke. <laughs> I know, we always trample all over your jokes. Or someone out the room. Um, but is it a problem? Is it a problem? Because Fraser says it's called Doctor Who, and so the Doctor should really be in it. Does, is this story affected because he's not in this episode? No, no, I don't think it is actually because I think the other two regulars are so brilliant that they cover for it wonderfully. And um, because also you do 
kind of see the doctor being around. So um so there are I mean, there's someone standing in for him or lying in for him mostly that actually I'm not so sure it's a huge problem. And for years, I didn't actually notice that there was half an hour where he wasn't on the screen, which kind of says something. I, mean, I don't know whether that's because of the movie format or or what, but um, I don't remember noticing he was on holiday for this week. Fraser? Am I, in words that will surprise no one, I'm going to politely disagree with that. <laughs> well, what a um, Lightly disagree. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, well, more friends. Um, I think, you know, you look at other stories that they do it a little bit better. I think um size right about this team, but there's 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 one problem with this team where you take the doctor out that you have when you don't in perhaps the Web of Fear episode two. You know, the doctor is in the tunnel, but you know, it's Jamie and it's Victoria who are left to carry that story so you know you have the bit where you know the the meet travers and then recognize travers and you know victoria goes wandering off because she's not safe and, and that carries the story through because that's all those characters can do they can't really drive the plot forward themselves but with this team you've got zoe mm. and zoe is very intelligent very capable more than adequate in stepping into the doctor's shoes to carry this plot forward there's nothing to stop you know, us being at the point where, um, you know, the foam is sweeping over the planet Earth and Zoe is the one that twigs water will melt the foam. But instead, she gets trapped um, crawling around, you know, behind the scenes in the um, the aircon panels, which I don't know whether you guys think sexy or not. We'll leave that another story. Um, but, you know, she's has not made the most of when the doctor's missing so the wheels start to spin when really there's nothing to stop her moving the plot forward but is that because we're in part four and if he'd had part five off then maybe she would have been able to do that because that's where the plot would have well, been and that she, point. Does, she does that in the invasion doesn't she she lit she's the one that takes down the cyber army in space so it's not like she's not capable yeah. of doing that exactly so she should be doing more in this episode but we can't because we need the doctor. Because it's I'm going to slightly less politely agree with you, Fraser. Um, because <laughs> I think it's not a problem in this episode. Jamie and Zoe are strong enough to hold this up. But as well, you've got fabulous guest characters. And this is where there's a lot of examination of Fusion, which is really interesting. And this is the episode where the invasion goes to Earth, which is really exciting. So I think they've sort of Terra Six has gone right. Troughton's out. We've got to make, we've got to do as much as possible in this episode to distract people from the fact that he's not here. So there's a lot going on in this. And what's wrong with running around sexy ventilation shafts? That's the main thing. We are right now. <laughs> I think it all depends on how you view the ventilation shafts. Really, I think that's your little thing you need to. Have some therapy about. You know what's so glorious though is that sequence there where she was going up behind Phipps. Literally, is the same sequence from the Impossible Planet all those years later. Well, she's doing exactly the same thing all those years. Oh, it's always, always ventilation shafts. Yeah. Well, it's a very easy way of getting from A to B, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Oh, look, he's shooting through a grill. I'm. I'm. Yeah, it's not. Right There's such a sense of movement in the camera work in these 
in these episodes that you don't always get. Lots of 62 is quite static, but here there's there's not just movement from the actors, the cameras are moving as well, which I think is Michael Ferguson just being that that extra bit on it. You know how sort of Paul Bernard, uh, director of Day of the Daleks, Tide Monster and Frontier in Space, favours the zoom. He never moves his cameras, but he zooms in and out a yes, lot. Yes, lots of crash zooms. Yeah. There's lots of movement occurring. Well, Michael Ferguson's smart enough to move the camera and zoom at the same time. Yeah, and uh, we just had this, this shot here where you've got um, Professor Eldrad at the very front of the shot. And it the camera's moving up and down while... Um, Commander Radnor is moving, and then it goes into Radnor. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's great camera work, isn't it? It's, yeah, it, it gives depth and perspective to the set. You know, yes. we know that these are actually quite small sets, but um, the way that they're being shot and where they're shooting through things and up and down and, and left and right and whatnot is it does give that that sense of, of depth of an otherwise really cramped studio. Yeah, exactly. And so you're zooming in and then zooming out. So you've got a sense of scale that you probably haven't got in the studio at all. It's really good stuff. What's even better about the Ambassadors of Death, I know we've covered this a bit already, but is that you then rip away everything that's a bit embarrassing and pony about this. So the futuristic setting, you know, the terrible costumes and oh, I know we talked about that. <clears throat> you put him on Earth in a contemporary setting, sort of this Sweeney-esque setting of warehouses and things like this. And suddenly his very dynamic direction just comes alive, doesn't it? Yes. In an incredible way. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens here on location, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the first location work for the story. And Joe, we've, we've talked about this quite a lot, about sort of noticing the pattern in classic Doctor Who of lots of um, location footage in part one and then getting down to part four where there's very little. So when we did full circle, we, we said by part four, there's nothing on location at all. But here, to come in in part four and introduce the location work is is adding an extra layer to this story that wasn't there sort of in the early things. So suddenly you're breaking out of the studio and breaking out onto this huge location on Hampstead Heath. The scale. And it's, yeah, the scale is suddenly increasing. Maybe Dick's knows. He knows, right, you know what? We've done this base under siege again and again and again. We'll have a couple of episodes of that and then we'll head down to Earth and, and make it sort of a wider scale invasion. I think he's smart enough to do that. Oh, yeah, boy. even at this point. This is the bit where Fusum has to put the Doctor in the T-Mac cubicle and beam him yeah. out into space. Don't you tell me there ain't nothing it? of interest in this episode. It's it's interesting. It's just that the plot isn't going anywhere. That's that's the point. Well, no, because they start beaming all the sea pods down to Earth, so the plot is moving. I could have done that last week or the week before, to be honest. there's It's so... Everything's just. Are you suggesting it should be four episodes long? It, it could easily be four episodes. I feel. I mean, well, there are lots of stories that could easily be four <laughs> episodes, and here we are. And this is not, at least. Um, but we've got to. We must ask the computer what to do. We can't <laughs> ask the computer; it's not working. But but how can we do anything without asking the computer? And so on for five episodes. Pushing the the dilemma. Not in the computer having a nervous breakdown, but Fusion having a nervous breakdown. As far it's like psychologically, yeah. it's far more interesting. I think so, definitely. And as we said, Terry Scully is doing doing brilliant work. And here oh, again, 
he is he's absolutely he's tearing himself apart trying to do this or not do this there's a weird intensity to this that ain't anywhere else in this season i don't think no i think this is i mean everyone says sort of season six the outstanding performances are um kevin stoney and um philip maddock in um the war games james Bree. Uh, James Bree. <laughs> well, that's outstanding for all sorts of reasons. But no one... Arthur no, Cox. Again, <laughs> well, exactly. Well, yep, as, as young Cully. Um, but no one, ever, no one ever singles this performance by Terry Scully out. And again, it's part of the... We've had this story for so long that we forget that it's... We haven't looked at it in enough detail to say, actually, look at what he's doing. Well, it's unusual for Doctor Who to take that position of putting a character like that and say, right, you murder somebody or die. Like, Doctor Who just doesn't usually go there. And it's really clever direction as well because yeah. it moves. Uh -huh. You know, it's it's cutting between the Doctor, a slow zoom on the Doctor and a quick zoom on Fushim and the button. And Fushim presses the button. We don't see Jamie and the other guy whip the Doctor no. away. So it's mm -hmm. like, you know you were left as a little mini cliffhanger, you know, has, has it actually happened? Has the doctor been and look at, look teleported? At Fusion, he's absolutely broken there. He's sobbing. He, he, that's just such brilliant character work. Think about the waters of Mars later on in the new series and putting the doctor in that position. Like, can you help these people or not? And there's sort of the intensity of that. That's what this is tapping into that kind of dilemma. I just think it's so unusual for the classic series. Yeah, you don't see it much, I, do you? I don't think we get another character like this. That's not like not like tortured like this, you mean? No, you get we someone get, like Gordo yeah. in Sunmakers where he tries to commit suicide in the first episode, but then very quickly the Doctor's like, "Hello, have a jelly baby, right? Let's sort this out." You know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we don't get sort of that conflict of someone who's sort of forced to work for someone and do things against their will just to to stay alive. Lennox? Maybe Lennox. Ooh, that's a really good example, actually. Another another Michael Ferguson. Oh, yeah. And well cast again as well. Yeah. No, well, 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 the mighty Cyril Shaps is my favourite actor in Doctor... My favourite guest star, in recurring guest star in Doctor Who. I think he is just wonderful in every role. This ghastly place, sigh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, 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 dear. These are the biggest fucking ventilation shafts I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, well, I man. think they're sort of service shafts as well, aren't they? I think that's sort of oh. what they're... You and the ventilation Maybe. shafts. Well, there's a lot of them, all right. <laughs> <laughs> that was I, a good thing a minute is... ago. Yeah, I, that is always um, bigger than the bedroom <laughs> with with the huge gates to open them. Don't surprise at me for talking about ventilation shafts in Doctor Who. It's a I, bloody staple. I am going on holiday now. See you later. <laughs> Leave us <laughs> alone with your shafts. I, I am going to ask you about. Stop it. <laughs> is because it is only relevant in this episode. Then I want you both to give me an example of the Doctor ditching the show for holiday for one episode that really works. For both of you. Turn left. Okay. Fraser? Um, I was talking more of the classic ones. Oh, right. Well, okay. The classic series. Okay. A single episode. Uh, Space Museum. 
No, yeah, because he's frozen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He goes off. Um, you know, Vicky um starts a revolution. Ian goes proper die hard. Uh, Barbara has a nice cardi. So that's that's. I'm gonna say I always love the the two episodes that he takes off of the keys of Marinus, where he says, "Oh, I'm just gonna pop forward two weeks. See you, <laughs> see you for a while." Have a nice time. Enjoy the screaming jungle. I'll go and have a nice time <laughs> in the city of Millennius. <laughs> I like that one. I, I quite like... Um... <coughs> I can't think of any more, you know. Um, Wheel in Space is not bad because he's knocked out, isn't he? And he's quite unwell for episode two. And then you've got Jamie's sort of shell shock sort of through that. It's weird though, because I think Fraser's right. But when the companions vanish for an episode like Barbara and Keys of Mariners and things like that. I don't think you notice as much. Cause because no. you can sort of come away from the companions for a bit. I'm making Hartnell invisible in the Celestial Toy Maker. Yeah, well that's yeah, that's like that and that just always feels mean. But I can't believe it. I just managed to talk all over the bit where the ice warrior pops down to earth, does his little <laughs> dance, and then yeah. hits... and Commander Radnor picks up a machine gun. He does. He's going to take him down. I love, I love that bit where the, the ice web knocks the team up. He goes, "Oh shit, left, right." <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a door he here somewhere. Us, he told us the door was to the left. It's not. It's to the right. I don't know where. I'm, oh, I'll just shoot you and. But it does look you like. Shot, did you tell us don't... where the door was? <laughs> I just think you could play like, oh, the okie dokie. <laughs> just as well. Mm-hmm. Oh look. Oh, actually, that's not a bad Trout like, is it? That's, no, no, that's not badly done. And two strong... I know we've mentioned women, but two strong women. One scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, is this the episode him? where Phipps dies? Because I think nobody has much of a reaction to that, given that they've been, you know, on an adventure for two episodes together. And again, he's uh, he's a great character as well. He's really nicely played. I think Christopher Cole is is really good. I think he's better in the mutants, though. Yeah, well, I think he's got a bit more to work with in the mutants. Oh fuck me! Look at all that foam. You see that? <laughs> <laughs> it's the last gasp of the Trout and Foam Machine adventures, oh, and it's and wonderful. So it begins. <laughs> we've got this amount of fairy liquid left we've got to use it all up before the end of the season oh there we go oh look, good old michael ferguson look at that i mean it's just brilliant isn't it and i know it'll be honed and perfected for ambassadors of death where it does look beautiful but yeah he's he's got a style and he is working it well he knows what he's doing but the, the suspense here, the intercutting of those amazing shots of the Ice Warriors' feet stomping along, then the silhouette, then the fella who doesn't know they're being approached, clearing no. away all the foam. I think that's really good. And I, we can't hear it, but there's a fantastic sound effect for the Ice Warriors in this, which sounds like a crocodile. or It's yeah. a really mm-hmm. alien noise. It's that clicking-y kind of noise, isn't yeah. it? And I, I love the sound of their guns and the Mirrolon effect as well, of the bodies being being sonicked. Straight into that. Just as well, because there's a lot of it. Uh-huh. 
If they if they are going to use if they're going to suggest the foam is you know the the deadly thing that's attacking the earth, well at least they've got a lot of it, you know, and it's yes, exactly. It's not just like it's a little tiny bit of slime somewhere or whatever. They're going for it in in the epic stakes. And by the end of episode five, well, <laughs> there's there's more of it than anyone could possibly imagine, you imagine outside of that. That had to clean that up at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, outside of a university phone party, this is uh, not. <laughs> this is quite unusual as well. Phipps has like a bit of a panic attack, doesn't he? Inside, yeah. The... So you know, all the guest characters are getting their moments. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and we we've, we've got Terence Dix is um, scripting these episodes, and it's his first time out, and he's already on the characterization like no one's business. Well, I think we said, Fraser, didn't we, that he did a lot of tinkering with the Dominators as well, didn't he? Bringing in that scene, that amazing scene between Rago and Toba. Yeah, I think most of the the Dominators was um, Derek Sherwin that, mm. you know, who was the the script at the time. Terence as assistant was this is that's where we started to to kind of cut his teeth and, and learn his trade. And this this story, you know, from here onwards, this is where he is, you know, really starting to stretch his legs and. Um, yeah, he's in ascendance at this point, isn't he? You know, boys, you can tell this is sort of a dawn, can't you, with the sunlight. This would have looked amazing in colour, wouldn't it? Yeah, I was going to say. I always think the Ice Warriors actually look better in black and white than they do in colour. I think the greens are a bit over the top, maybe. I, I was quite surprised how well that Curse of Peladon scrubbed up and how oh, great... God, just oh yeah, I've never seen it looking that good. But as well, I think um the way Ferguson silhouettes the ice works, that's where the design really works. Yes. Where the detail sort of missing, but this great hulking sort of turtle creature mm-hmm. is coming. Because they've got an interesting shape that sort of dominates the screen. I think I'm just demonstrating that for everyone. Um for those of you at home. Um but it it looks it's a great silhouette on the screen, isn't it? It's like the astronauts the next year it just it just works yeah and this is why i think this is their best story because i think <clears> they're <throat> shot better in this story than any other i think they're characterized better maybe in curse of peladon and the ice warriors but i really just think they're shot so beautifully in this this story i think they're really well characterized in the ice warriors as well or certainly the, the head oh, true. yeah mm-hmm Really interesting. Well, Vulcan at least, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ace Warriors is better. You're right. <laughs> I don't think it's better because it's pretty dreary to watch, but it's more interesting. I need to do that commentary, you know. I might, I might yeah, it's one. an interesting one, the Ice Warriors. Is, um, Derek Martinez has a very clinical and documentary style of shooting, which... I often find a bit alienating. I think it works really well in Spearhead from Space, but I find some of uh, some of his other work a bit less fascinating. He's he shoots really brilliantly, but it it kind of leaves me a bit bit cold. I don't know. I feel like in the Ice Warriors, you've got Dudley Simpson doing a lot of the work there. Fraser. Mind you, that is also Dudley Simpson is having a whale he's of a time doing crazy. this one. These bits where he's going towards the camera, the ice where he's like, dun 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 dun, dun. <laughs> it's like getting crazy. 
Sorry, friend. And it's really interesting because he brings a similar sound to the uh, the Ice Warriors get lots of drums again in Curse of Peladon and Monster of Peladon. So it's like he's got this continuity of scoring all these stories and remembers what he's done and brings that back. So there's a similar theme for the Ice Warriors in Curse of Peladon, where it's bom 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 bom. Wow. I mean, this has become the Doctor Who Incidental Music podcast. Well, I, I think um, the music in this story is just phenomenally good. It's so great. It's so 1969. I think the piano bit is the best. Yeah. Fast piano. Fraser, please make your point. You're being very patient. Yeah. No, my point was, yeah, Dudley Simpson does the scores for both this story and Ice Warriors, but Ice Warriors is the better score. And that is the secret weapon of the Ice Warriors for me is, you know, you go into the Ice Warriors, the very first episode, just have that sort of like, you know, opera singer doing the... At the start. And that just sets the tone so well for what's what's going to come with, you know, glaciers and Martians and, and all the rest of it. I think Dudley Simpson is what really ultimately sets the Ice Warriors above this story. Even though he's doing both, he does a better job the first time. Well, you know what else I think is a strength of the Ice Warriors, which I actually think is better than this as well, is I think the setting is realised more convincingly. I think the 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 Antarctic setting is really well done in that, with use of stock footage and, and lots of sort of cave sets and things like that. And that fabulous old mansion house in the middle of that snowy setting. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. With the juxtaposition of the really futuristic and silly costumes. It it just works, yeah. but I think Ferguson shoots his sets better, so it's oh. it's doing some roundabouts. I mean, this is it. There's there's things that are better in this story, you know, than than the Ice Warriors, um, but there's things that's better in this story than a lot of other stories, you know, namely Michael Ferguson, really. Yeah, um, and this is uh, I think this is more an action adventure story than the Ice Warriors is. The Ice Warriors is a bit slower and a bit more cerebral, perhaps than than this one is. Yeah, it does kind of hang on more on that, you know, man versus machine yes. element, which you Whereas this is just a few minutes ago. Yeah, but this is just, they're going for it. Look at Zoe yeah. here, creeping oh. against the light screen. <laughs> That's brilliant. Filler does with silhouettes. It's yeah. incredible. And this this ending in a second where she's up against the screen... I think and, it's, and it's the most horrible. ridiculous heating control in the whole world as well. No, excuse me. Come round my ass. I still haven't figured mine out yet. There's <laughs> your heating control. Look, if mine was just a wheel that just went to full on, I'd be all right. I was going to say, Joe, is, is your heating control look like it will steer a ship? <laughs> I wish it <laughs> I don't think they want to be heating the air up to 100 degrees centigrade, though. I'm not sure that's going to go well for them. That's true. Oh, Bips! Oh, Miralond to death. Uh huh. It's the way we'd all want to go. I like to think that he has just turned into one of those bouncy balls, though, and sort of bounced mm -hmm. off down the corridor from Empress of Mars. Oh, sorry. Look at her. Look at that. That's a great shot. And as you, you know, it's how the camera just sort of glides in with him as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's got an eye for a moment, and he. Hasn't he no, just? We can't we can't wax lyrical enough about Michael Ferguson. And I'll tell you what, I ain't even started yet because I think some of the bits in five and six. I think we've got some great fun bits coming up, haven't we? I actually... oh, some great form bits, did you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
We certainly got a lot of those. You've never been to a phone party? No, I no. will. Oh, <laughs> have you, Joe? No. Oh, <laughs> and everyone got their kit off very, very quickly. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, does anyone have any Twitter questions ready for us? Because I believe there's still some to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> hang on. Was you it me who had thing? them? Yeah, it was your. Oh, <laughs> hang on. Right, I'll have to look them up now. <laughs> Not, I wasn't prepared. Sorry. Hang on, hang on. I just can't remember which ones we've already answered. Well, don't worry. A little repetition. We're all, we're watching the Seas of Death. People are used to that. I remember. I'm um, Darren Rounders asked, "Is this Terence Dix's best scripts?" No, but no. I do think it's his best repair job. I think it's, yeah, definitely up there, isn't it? Mm. I think his best script is Horror Fang Rock. I think Johnny Morris asked that question as well. Oh, right. Oh, well, maybe it was Johnny Morris. Sorry. What do you think Sorry, is Johnny. best script then, Fraser and Sai? Well, it's the five doctors, obviously. Ah, oh, oh, not Horror Fang Rock. I think Horror Fang Rock. No, Horror Fang Rock is very, is technically very good. And absolutely brilliant and full of atmosphere, full of brilliance and everything else. But The Five Doctors is taking an impossible brief and producing something that is absolutely completely full of love and affection and absolutely the most quotable classic Doctor Who story of them all. And it's just beautifully done. Is he just pie? That's what he said. Fraser, if you say robot, just to be contrary, <laughs> I like robot too. I think I robot is very fun. Wouldn't that next week? But come on, Fraser, hit me. Well, no, I'm 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 going to say Ambassadors of Death again. I think that's both his best script, his best story, his best repair job, his best having to step in. Um, and it brings that, us back that, to Michael Ferguson in there as well, doesn't it? Hulk's it in. does, it does, and it kind of it brings us back to um to Michael Ferguson again and so obviously you have Terence Dix and Michael Ferguson working together on this story in very good harmony and producing something very good and they seem to complement each other in ambassadors as well um, so you know that leads to a really big question for you guys and can you think of any other writer and director combination that stands out? Yes Ooh. I can uh, Robert Back Stewart and Douglas Canfield Oh nice because I'm not sure there are many others that actually work together more often than than once or twice. Well you know so, enough, you know, Terrence Sticks and Peter Moffat, because that's oh, the old, true. Like, yeah, oh, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they actually are in cahoots pretty well as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because State of Decay is brilliant. Mm. Um I was trying to think. Oh Fraser you new... stumped us. What about the new series? Who do you think works best? Russ T. Davis and Graham Harper. Yeah, sure. that's yeah, absolutely. Moffat uh, and Rachel Tullery. Yes, yeah. and mm-hmm. Moffat and Nick Horan as well. And Chris Chibnall and Jamie Magnus Stone. Oh yes, yes. Oh yes. Who bring out really good stuff yes. in each other? Um, any others? Any others? Hmm. <laughs> Richard Martin and no one. <laughs> oh, what, any more questions before we skip into five? I'm still looking for her. It's months <laughs> back. Will you keep looking? I'll keep scrolling and I'll have some ready. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here oh, we okay. are. Look. 
Um, uh, 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 this is making wonderful podcasting here. In universe, how did the astral map wind up as an exhibit in Professor Eldred's museum? Oh, Matt, I don't know, but Gary Russell's got to write that story sometime, hasn't he? <laughs> I don't know. Go on. That one. Uh, Quickie dropped it off when he dropped off the drill from the Dominators. Ah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was Good on it. Quickie. He's been all around the universe, you know. He, he has. has. He guest star in this one because it's also Series 6, but unfortunately, as usual, his power is low. Oh. <laughs> Stick him in the microwave, he'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think quite a lot of the questions we've actually covered, so it's fine. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I'll tell you but what. There are a couple of ep- there are a couple of episode specific ones to come. Because people are now being extremely patient with us. Uh, <laughs> Should we just finish here? <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut it. In there. <laughs> uh, does anyone need a drink or anything?